For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, with the latest readout video from our free weekly emailed Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, and also a reminder to help support our work with a one-time or monthly donation. It doesn't have to be a lot, though it can be, but click here and give us the price of a cup of coffee a month. If we got that from a quarter of our YouTube subscribers, it would really put us on a firm footing. Unlike all the people who were super excited that John Kerry flew in a jet airplane to China to get nothing on climate. Look, if mainstream media are hoping to rebuild their credibility and their audiences and their profitability, you might think they'd try not to appear absurdly credulous. Instead, NBC gushed that, quote, as the world sizzles, US and China try to restart vital climate talks, end quote. And from the activist side, though who can tell them apart from journalists nowadays, Climate Home News emailed, quote, US-China talks thaw in heatwave, end quote. Gad, such metaphors. Though, of course, the world's not sizzling, nor are climate talks between the US and China vital, and nor are they thawing. I mean, as a result of these sessions, will Beijing stop building coal-fired power plants? No, of course not. According to CHN, quote, there was no outcome document and no grand announcements, end quote. Be still my gaping yawn. Kerry didn't even get to meet Xi Jinping, just one of his lackeys. The big guy was busy meeting with senior communist officials to tell them, in a passage from a fatuous Washington Post story that was quoted by Joe Nova, that, quote, China remained unwaveringly committed to reaching its peak in carbon emissions before 2030 and becoming carbon neutral by 2060. But, Mr. Xi added, the pathway and means for reaching this goal and the tempo and intensity should be and must be determined by ourselves and never under the sway of others, end quote. As Nova sneered, quote, China is still building two new coal plants every week. Who believes they are constructing a hundred coal plants a year, but are planning for emissions to start falling consistently and meaningfully in less than seven years, end quote. Uh... That'd be John Kerry, and U.S. climate activists, and the mainstream media, also known as the usual useful idiots. As for sizzling, you can't open an email from almost any mainstream outlet these days without being told something along the lines of, quote, heat is torching records and spreading across the U.S. and Europe, end quote, during an unprecedented, record-smashing global heat wave often based on factual errors that will do until lies come along. Like the Washington Post fib that Tony Heller exposed about Fort Myers, Florida, having a record 89 days over 90 degrees when it had 169 of them in 1944. And, this is Heller again, that the proportion of U.S. weather stations recording a temperature of 95 degrees Fahrenheit or higher has been falling steadily since 1931 and is at a record low so far this year. It's almost as if journalists occupied a separate reality. And indeed, Emily Pontecorvo wrote revealingly in Heat Map Daily that, quote, the heat is weighing on me and I don't even live in the part of the country experiencing a prolonged, life-threatening heat wave, end quote. Uh, except rhetorically. For instance, we're told that Phoenix breaks record with 19 consecutive days 100 degrees or higher, end quote. But Phoenix turns out to mean Sky Harbor International Airport, also known as, quote, Arizona's largest and busiest airport and among the largest commercial airports in the United States, end quote, along with being a military facility. 
That's just the place to look for pristine temperature measurements unaffected by urban heat island effects like tarmacs and roaring jet engines. As Ryan Mao pointed out, in 2018, AP cautioned that Phoenix was warming at three times the global rate. But it then said, quote, the heat island effect is caused by local land use and energy decisions and is separate from global warming, end quote. Today, that kind of story would risk being fact-checked by, oh, say, AP. Or by Tony Heller, again, who noted that the previous Phoenix record, quote, of 18 straight days over 110 degrees was set in 1974 during the Ice Age scare, end quote. To which we add, and if you take out the increase in the urban heat island effect since then, that's still the record. Then there's the fact, unearthed by Heller once again, though the mainstream media could also be doing this, that so far in 2023, New York City has had six days over 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and the highest temperature was 93. But in 1936, it had 26 such days and topped out at 106. Which reminds some of us who grew up before metric, or who live in the United States, that the generic standard for really hot versus just mildly annoying has been, since our youth, 100 in the shade also known as hot enough to fry an egg on the sidewalk, which the U.S. Library of Congress says it never actually is if you crack it directly onto the cement, in which case, ugh, you wouldn't want to eat it anyway. But, they say, the expression itself dates back to, what's this, 1933? No, the first instance they found was June 1899, and they added, quote, so the idea had captured the American imagination and become one of our common sayings by that time, end quote. Gee, wonder why? Maybe it used to be hot? No, can't be. Although Patrick Moore did point out that the maximum average June temperature in the contiguous United States has been declining for over a century, even as CO2 has been rising. And now, I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to ask you please to help support our work. Because here at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we don't get lavish government grants. We don't get big foundation money. And contrary to what our critics say, we're not in the pocket of the Koch brothers. We're dependent on our viewers and our readers to make a pledge. One time or monthly, big or small, just click here, a cup of coffee a month. That's what it takes to help us keep producing these videos and our newsletter and pushing back against the climate alarmist steamroller. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also moaned that the suggestion to name heat waves was no sooner made than adopted, with the current European one being dubbed Cerberus for the classic Greek three-headed canine guardian of Hades. Not that it's a scare tactic, you understand, but stand by for heat wave Beelzebub. We also note that the Canadian government apparently plans to end all subsidies for fossil fuels, which on its own, and in theory, we think is a good idea. It should be consumers who pick winners and losers, including in energy markets, not governments. But of course, the Canadian government has no intention of ceasing to subsidize other forms of energy or to stop what it considers winter fossil fuel subsidies, like those for carbon capture measures, as if all dollars didn't taste like chicken, nor can it tell a special tax break from a normal accounting convention or really do anything much except talk big about its own excellence. For instance, when it comes to using fossil fuels, Justin Trudeau, who is Canada's carbon Bigfoot, just jetted off to New York, quote, to participate in the World Law Congress and to present an award to President von der Leyen for the EU Commission's commitment to the promotion of peace through law, end quote. Well, that sure beats staying in Ottawa and going into the office to do actual work, though of course it could be worse. 
as, for instance, with climate activist multimillionaire actor Leonardo DiCaprio, who was spotted taking a helicopter from his mega-yacht to go to restaurants and nightclubs and back. In the newsletter, we also note that the people who claim the science is settled on climate often seem to know nothing even about what they think this settled science says. For instance, when Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Scott Perry questioned U.S. climate czar John Kerry, Kerry babbled, quote, We have put, I forget the exact number of tons, millions of tons of CO2 and other greenhouse gases are now in the atmosphere, end quote. And he was only off by five orders of magnitude, because the generally accepted human total of greenhouse gases added to the atmosphere since the 19th century is actually in the hundreds of billions, but Kerry said, millions. He literally has no idea. Very possibly he's hazy on the difference. There's certainly nothing in his testimony that gave any confidence that if he were spontaneously asked how many zeros are there in a billion, he would even try to answer, let alone pull it off. Congressman Perry, who incidentally is a former Brigadier General in the Army National Guard and did know that it was hundreds of billions, also cut through Kerry's rhetorical fog to ask a question that is too rarely raised and never in Canadian politics, but really ought to be. He asked Kerry, quote, how much is the correct amount of CO2, end quote. When Kerry retreated into his usual trite general claims, Perry pressed him for an actual number, and Kerry replied, I'm not making this up, quote, it changes every day, end quote, which is utter gibberish. If there is a correct temperature, and by the way, alarmists should also be asked what that is and how they know, but if there is one, and if atmospheric CO2 is the control knob on the global thermostat, then there must be one constant correct level of atmospheric CO2 that will keep us at the correct temperature. But John Kerry has never thought about it and seems ill-equipped to do so. Perry then switched to Kerry's December 2022 claim to the Washington Post that it was necessary to remove 1.6 trillion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere at an estimated cost of $1,000 per ton for a total cost of $1.6 quadrillion, which again is ludicrous since it's roughly 160 times total global GDP, which is another number that one doubts that Kerry could get even approximately right without prompting or possibly even with it. But in any case, this is the key thing. How could Kerry know how much CO2 had to be removed from the atmosphere without knowing how much should be left. And another thing. Political scientist Robert Conquest famously said that the best way to predict the behavior of an organization is to assume that it is controlled by a secret cabal of its enemies. And certainly had Kerry been briefed by his enemies before that appearance, he could hardly have done worse. But Conquest's maxim also seems to apply to modern democratic governments in two ways on climate. One being they seem determined to wreck their own economies, and second, they seem determined to wreck their political prospects by doing it including by making us all buy exploding unsatisfactory electric cars from communist China. Really? That's your cunning plan? Yes, it is. Now, Western car makers are getting murdered in China, including the, in the electric vehicle market, and they're getting murdered at home as well, laying off workers, although raking in subsidies from governments that like EVs, because actual customers don't want to buy them. As Axios warned, quote, unsold electric cars are piling up on dealer lots, end quote. And another story out of the UK helps explain why, quote, used electric car values have dropped like a stone in 2023, end quote. As for China's supposedly stellar performance in this market, the Hindustan Times auto section explained, quote, Chinese car makers have surprised the world with their bulging sales numbers, especially in the electric car segment. 
Over the last few years, Chinese automakers have posted crazy sales numbers and have started dominating the global electric car market. However, a video has surfaced possibly revealing a secret behind the Chinese car manufacturer's bulging sales numbers." End quote. And that video shows endless rows of new Chinese EVs registered by their makers, then parked in row after row after row in fields and left to rot. Which isn't exactly good for the environment, now is it? Or the economy? Mind you, anyone familiar with Soviet central planning could have anticipated that the numbers were being juiced to please the Politburo. But even hardened economists might have been surprised at the scale and brazenness of it. Whereas, again, the mainstream media are just credulous. According to NBC, quote, Chinese electric vehicle makers lead the world, rivaling U.S. pioneers, end quote. Mind you, Bloomberg did recently caution that, quote, China's electric car giant hasn't sold a vehicle yet, end quote. That's awkward. The newsletter also continues our examination of the Clintel report critiquing the IPCC's AR6, this week looking at Chapter 9, where Dutch science journalist Marcel Kroc provides an excellent overview of the IPCC's misuse of future emission scenarios to bump up the fright meter at the expense of scientific integrity. It's not merely that the IPCC tries to ignore the expert literature showing that RCP 8.5 is implausible. It's that, in one place, the IPCC admits that it is a low likelihood outcome, and then, throughout the rest of the report, treats it as being very probable. They're not even trying to look scientific anymore. And speaking of looking scientific, via no trick zone we learn of a brand new study reporting on some very old ice data that never made it into print before. In 1930 and 1931, legendary geologist Alfred Wegener launched scientific expeditions into the west of Greenland to measure its climate and ice conditions, which he thought affected European weather. Unfortunately, Wegener himself died during the 1930 expedition and was buried in Greenland. But while his colleagues finished the work and his brother Kurt carefully compiled the data, it then sat in obscurity at the University of Graz for many years. Now, it's been published. And, combined with modern data, it shows that Greenland rapidly warmed from about 1920 to the early 1930s, then it cooled until the mid-1990s despite an uptick in the late 1960s, and then it warmed until about 10 years ago before turning down a bit. Almost as though there were a cyclical natural pattern here that had nothing to do with CO2. And speaking of Greenland, from the CO2Science.org archive, we present a study of the model-based projections that CO2-induced global warming would cause a disastrous destabilization of the Greenland ice sheet, known as GRIS to insiders, and that that destabilization in turn would raise global sea level by several meters. But according to this study, during the previous Eemian interglacial, as best as we can reconstruct things, temperatures were 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius warmer than the peak in the current Holocene interglacial, and there was significant melting of the Greenland ice. But today, with atmospheric CO2 higher, temperatures are lower, Greenland's ice mass is higher, and sea levels are lower. So once again, there's nothing unnatural or ominous to be seen, except in the headlines. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm not buying that China story or one of their EVs. Music